Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. Part of our children's choir. You can leave now. The rest of you open your Bibles to Acts 19. We are not going to share this morning about India. And the reason why is because we have a lot of jet lag. We have a lot of videos we've got to get through, a lot of pictures we've got to get through. And Dave and Jan, who went on our trip, um, they stayed in London three extra days, and they just get back today, and we wanted the whole team to be back together. And so next Sunday, you will hear testimonies from everybody from the team. You will see video. You will see um, uh, slides. Guys, can we turn the the air on? I'm seeing a lot of people waving their... um, Are you turning it on? Okay, they're waving at me because I was hot singing down there. Not as hot as India, but um, yeah, yeah. There's something about revival that happens that affects the young people of a generation. And you think about the major revivals that have happened in the history of our world. Uh, Jonathan Edwards was used mildly by God to preach a series of messages in 1735 in Northampton, Massachusetts. And under his preaching, God used that to launch what we would call the first great awakening in the United States, a a revival of major proportions that affected every aspect of the culture. He had a church of about 620 members. When he started preaching this series of messages that God launched revival, 300 people in his church got saved. Now do the math. That means half of his church did not know Jesus. But what had happened was there were nine years of just transformation where God did an amazing thing, especially among teenagers. Now, there was a lot of controversy about the First Great Awakening. Um, Pastors in Boston looked at it and said, this isn't real, this isn't true, this is just a manufactured hoopla. And so Jonathan Edwards wrote a letter to a pastor explaining what had happened, especially among the teenagers and the young people. And here's what he said. He says, quote, in this letter, there's been a great change among the youth of the town with respect to revelry, frolicking, profane, and licentious conversation, and lewd songs. And there's also been a great change among the youth, both old, with regard to bar hopping. I suppose the town has been in no measure so free of sin in these respects for any longer time altogether, for 60 years, as it has been in these nine years past. When God brings revival to a culture, he often brings it to the teenagers, where there's a marked change in behavior. The things that they used to do, they no longer do because they don't want to do because they know it displeases God. And so when God comes, he he interrupts culture. He interrupts our lives. Bars close down. Teenagers stop cussing and listening to crazy music. There's wholesome language. There's a change. Not just with the teenagers, but from all parts of culture. That's what happens when revival comes. So we're back in Acts, 
And we've been out of Acts for a few weeks, so we're going to dive back in. And you guys know what happens, right? What happens when Paul shows up to a town? Riot or revival? We get both this morning. We get a riot and we get revival. How would you like that? You walk into town and you know there's going to be a riot. You know people are going to hate you. That's what happens to Paul. And so in Acts 19, he walks into Ephesus. Now, you have to understand something about Ephesus because it's probably one of the most strategic cities that Paul visited because he was there for three years. He spent more time there than in any other town that he went to. And we've got Acts chapter 19 and 20 here devoted to to his visit in Ephesus. And we've got a whole book focusing on Ephesus, the book of Ephesians. Timothy was the pastor to the church in Ephesus. We've got 1st and 2nd Timothy written. And then in the book of Revelation, Ephesus was the first of the churches that Jesus writes to. It's the church that had lost its first love. So what do we know about Ephesus? It's located in modern-day Turkey. It was called the supreme metropolis of Asia. It was one of the seven wonders of the world. 250,000 people lived there. There was this huge temple to Diana, Artemis. It was four times larger than the Parthenon in Athens. And in this temple to Diana, it was almost like a World Bank type system. It was really weird. It was like a Federal Reserve. So it was a bank... But it was also right next to the sea, and it was a seaport uh, town, Ephesus. And so this, this temple of Artemis became a, a, a haven for criminals, for prostitutes, for shysters, for merchants that wanted to get wealthy. There was also a museum there in the temple. And, and outside the temple, there were these little souvenir shops. How many of you have ever been like to New York City where they have all those souvenir shops outside of the Statue of Liberty or, or all these, um, these, these, these uh, what are they called, tourist traps? There were all these tourist traps around the Temple of Artemis where these craftsmen were be, would be making these little statues of Diana, these little statues of the temple, and they would be selling them and making money. So it's a tourist trap, it's a world bank, there's prostitutes, it's a museum, it's just a, a really great place to visit, wouldn't you say? And Artemis was the multi-breasted fertility goddess. It was also a place of the occult. And this is where Paul walks into. So let's see repentance and riot in Ephesus. Let's look at chapter 19 of Acts. Let's start in verse 8 because we picked up, we did verses 1 through 7 a few weeks ago. But let's, let's look at verse 8 through 10. He entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them, took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Now we know what happens when Paul enters a town, right? What's his first modus operandi? He goes to the the, the synagogue. He goes to the Jewish church to try to get a hearing. And usually they don't listen to him. Usually they, they throw him out. They think he's crazy. And that's what happens here. They, they speak evilly of Paul. And so what does he do? He takes a group of disciples and he goes to a school, this lecture hall of Tyrannus. 
And he spends two years with a group of people, discipling them day after day in the Word of God, teaching them, training them every day for two years in this lecture hall by this guy named Tyrannus, who probably rented out his lecture hall for people to, to, to use it. And here's the amazing thing that we see happen. What happens when disciples are equipped daily for two years? What do you think happens? Do you think they take that knowledge and they just sit and they soak and they say, oh, we've got so many Beth Moore studies we love. We've got our notebooks that we can fill in the blank. We've got so many bookshelves full of all these notebooks and we've been to so many discipleship classes and we just love to be here together. Let's just sit in this lecture hall and let's just have fun cloistering ourselves together as God's people. Is that what happens when disciples are trained every day for two years? No, look at verse 10. This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greek. And that's an amazing statement. All the residents heard the word of the Lord. Now, that doesn't mean that everybody became a Christian. It doesn't mean that everybody accepted their message. It just meant that those that were trained went out and made a difference so that everybody heard the word of the Lord. Now think about the impact if every single person in northeastern Colorado heard the word of the Lord, the clear word of the Lord. Not something that they got off the internet, not something that they got off some wacky televangelist, but something that you personally told them about Jesus Christ. What would northeastern Colorado look like if everybody heard the word of the Lord? We should be praying for that. We should be praying for God to raise up a group of people, i.e. Emmanuel Baptist Church, who are equipped to leave the four walls of this church and go out and make an impact in the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, we've seen this all throughout the book of Acts. They just didn't stay put, but they were on the move. They went out and they shared in their sphere of influence. Acts chapter 6, verse 7. The word of God continued to increase. And the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. We've seen the multiplication of disciples all throughout Acts. And it wasn't because Paul shared the gospel with everyone. It's because he equipped and trained a group of people to go out and do that. Now, we'd be foolish to think that everybody in Sterling this morning woke up this morning and said, Hey, I've got a great idea. There's that church behind Home Depot. It looks really nice. I think I'll go step foot in there and hear what that weird pastor has to say. Do you think most people woke up this morning in Sterling and said that? No. Most people did not wake up and say, I want to go to church today. But Monday through Saturday, when you're out interacting with these people in your workplace, in your neighborhoods, in your jobs, whenever you rub shoulders, you have the opportunity to share the gospel, share the word of the Lord. And we see this model of discipleship where for two years, Paul reasons, Paul trains, Paul teaches. And we have to be real careful here because one of the things that's really scary about our culture of church culture, here's, the, here's, here's church culture, okay? I want you to raise your hand, okay? How many of you have some type of notebook that you've used for a discipleship study that's on your shelf right now, okay? Or a, how many of you have been through a Bible study? okay. How many of you have heard the word of God? Okay. What does James say? Don't just be hearers, but doers. We are educated beyond our obedience. 
We have a lot of you that are, that are educated, you've been through Bible studies, you know what the Word says, but you're not actually obeying. Now let me tell you a little story about India. I'm going to give you some India stories this morning. One of the exciting things that we got to do, this was Heath and I, along with David, our, our missionary, we got to go into a home of, of a man and his friends that, that Dave was discipling. Dave met every morning with these guys in their home to disciple them. Now, here's what happened. You show up at the home at 7 o'clock in the morning. The three men are there along with the entire family. They come in and they sit on the floor and they listen to you teach the Bible for an hour. And then you enter into a prayer meeting where those people know how to pray. Now, would that happen in America? What happens if I show up at your house at 7 o'clock? Okay, Pastor Sean's here. Bring the whole family. Let's read the Bible. I'm there for two hours and we have a prayer meeting. Would that happen here in America? Some of you are laughing like, I'm not going to let you in my house at 7 o'clock in the morning. It was amazing that there was a hunger in this family to just sit and learn and be discipled. And here's what David would do. It's very interesting what David would do. He said, you've heard, now let's do. You've heard, now let's do. So he would teach them to pray and to encourage them to go out and do what we'd just been trained. And so David's taking these men that we were training to go out into the villages and actually do evangelism. And so a lot of times what we do in church is we hear, but we don't do. We don't follow through with obedience. And it was amazing to me just in two mornings of being in that home to see the hunger of a family willing to have someone come into their home and for two hours just open up the word of God and pray and be hungry to go out and obey that in their daily lives. And I have a picture of that's probably what Paul did. Even though it was in this lecture hall of Tyrannus, he had this group of people that were hungry to be taught, not just for information. I have often said this, we don't teach for information we teach for transformation. A lot of you have information, but that doesn't change anything. We have to go with what we've been taught and go out and make an impact. And that's what's happening. But notice what they call it. They were speaking, in verse 9, they were speaking evil of the way. It's interesting that Christianity there is called the way. The way which means that Christianity is more than just a Sunday morning religious experience. It's more than just something you tack on to your life. It is a a way of life. It is a, a lifestyle. It's where you're walking in obedience with Jesus Christ, and it defines who you are to the core of your being. As a matter of fact, what did Jesus say about himself in John 14, 6? Jesus said to them, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So all Asia heard the word of the Lord. So here's a question for you. Are you putting yourself in context where you can be trained and taught and equipped to go out and make a difference? Are you part of a small group Bible study setting? Here's the issue at Emmanuel Baptist Church, something that that we as elders are kind of wrestling with right now. There's a lot of you out here on Sunday mornings that sit and listen to a sermon, and you come and you hear a message, and you sing, and then you come here for about an hour and a half on Sunday morning, you walk out that door, but beyond that, there's no connection to the life of Emmanuel Baptist Church. You're not connected to a small group. 
You're not connected to a Bible study group. You're not connected in fellowship. And you can only get so much from me ranting and raving up on the stage. It's a monologue. You can't speak back to me. At least you're not supposed to when I'm up here. In a small group, you can talk, you can dialogue, you can pray, you can care for each other. You've got the opportunity to have this, this interaction. Now, here's the one thing that was weird in India. You stand up and preach, and, and, and like I preached a lot in India. And normally on Sunday mornings, you know, turn to Ephesians or turn to Acts chapter 19, and I, I start to read the scripture. Well, what they do is it's sword drill. So everybody's turning, and then all of a sudden, it's to see who can beat reading the scripture. So I'm about ready to start reading the scripture, and then somebody starts reading the scripture out there. And so I had to realize that... Um, yeah, the pastor doesn't read the scripture. You guys read the scripture. So don't do that. That'll freak me out. If you guys start reading the scripture when I'm supposed to read the scripture, you, you can read it silently, but let me read it out loud. Is that okay? All right. Let's keep going. Let's find out what kind of city Ephesus is. This is a funny story, by the way. There's humor in the Bible. So here we go. Verse 11. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that even handkerchiefs, or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by Jesus, whom Paul proclaims. Now seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this, but the evil spirits answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them so that they fled out the house naked and wounded. And that's a beating. That's embarrassing. How would you like to be ganged up by a demon left naked and... That's a wound. Okay. All this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all, and they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Now, there's something interesting about Ephesus that you need to also know. It was a town steeped in the occult. As a matter of fact, it was the magic occult central area in Asia at that time. They produced parchments, they produced books, people flocked from all over the, the world to come there to learn how to give incantations, to learn how to cast magic spells, to learn how to, how to practice these dark arts. And so you have a town that, that's already um, wrapped up in, in the occult, and especially the Jewish people kind of got wrapped up in this, and so you've got these seven sons of, of Sceva that are running around and they're seeing God do amazing things through Paul and they think okay well if we can just get in on this power let's just go up to these people and, and start casting out demons so they start going and, and they probably you know the more the more they say Jesus probably they feel the, the more power they have and so they start doing this mumbo jumbo stuff and the demon looks at them and says I know Jesus I know Paul but who are you and then there's the beating the, 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 the demon beats these guys leaves them naked and they run out of the house wounded but what happens what happens because of god's power verse 17 fear fell upon them all 
and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Christ was honored. Christ was glorified. There was a healthy fear of God. And then notice the repentance that happens. Concrete, real-life evidence of repentance. They came and they started confessing their practices. They came and they started burning their magic books. Now, now you, you've probably heard of book burnings or like back in the 80s, it used to be, okay, you had a Journey album, so let's burn Journey or let's burn Kiss or let's burn Motley Crue. I'm not talking about that. What they were doing was, this was idolatry, this was occultic, this was what their life was. They were physically burning this publicly as a way to say, I am making a solid, definitive break from that lifestyle that I was embroiled in. I was involved in the occult, I was involved in magic, I was involved in idolatry. I'm visibly, undeniably breaking that old life and I'm repenting and turning to a life with Christ. And so we have this whole issue of spiritualism, magic, occult. Let me tell you about a time I was scared in India. We had gone to a Christian village. We went to some Bogota villages and we went to a Christian village. There was a Christian village that 10 years ago had been destroyed by a landslide. Just the Christian section of the, of the village had been destroyed by a landslide. The rest of the village wasn't destroyed. The church was destroyed, and so they're beginning to rebuild a church. Some of the money that we've given as a manual is going to help to rebuild that church. And so we were going to encourage this body of believers, and so we were going to go in the morning and do a children's program, which was really actually good. I got it on video. Dave and Jan tell the story of the demon-possessed man and Mark, and then the kids acted out with the pigs being, you know, jumping over the cliff and all this kind of stuff. And then we were going to come back that night and have a prayer meeting. Well, Wayne, the pastor, pulls me aside and says, we really need to get prepared this afternoon for tonight because there's a demon-possessed lady that's going to come and you need to cast out a demon. So we need to get prepared for this tonight. We need to get prepared and, and we need to be praying about that. And my heart starts racing because I thought, I've never cast out a demon. I have no idea what's going to happen. And so I'm just sweating. And then all of a sudden, in the middle of the kids playing, Wayne comes over and says, well, she's here. Let's do it now. <laughs> oh! <laughs> Get your group over here and let's pray over this woman. She's gone to every witch doctor in the area. She's got a demon. We need to pray for her release. And so I looked at him and I said, I ain't got no mojo. I'm just letting you know. I come in the name of Jesus and what I'm going to do is I'm just going to preach the gospel over this woman. So, so, so this woman's there and we all gather around here and I'm just praying, Lord, give me the words to say because I don't know what to do here. So I just kind of lay my hands on her and I just begin to, to preach the gospel over her. To, to preach the power of Christ, the power of the resurrection, the power of grace, praying that, that God would flood her soul with, with an understanding of the power of the gospel. And I, and I said, Lord, if there is a demon in here, would you please cast it out? And Lord, would you do a work in this woman's life? And Lord, would you, would you show her the power of the gospel? Would you show her the power of Christ? Would you show her the power of the resurrection? Would you come and, and flood her heart with, with power, Lord, and, and show her that Jesus is the only way? And, and don't let her believe the lies of the witch doctor. And then, and then afterwards, we said amen, and I, I was waiting for something to happen. And nothing happened, and I went to Wayne afterwards, and I said, what normally happens? And he says, well, usually foaming at the mouth, convulsing, and shrieks. Okay, did I just not do something right? <laughs> no, you probably provoked the Spirit, and it'll probably come out tonight when we come back for the prayer meeting. So I'm like, great, I have to wait all afternoon <laughs> to come back tonight. So I'm like, I was going to call Dawn, I'm like, you got to be praying. But it was like 3 o'clock in the morning, and I'm like, I don't want to wake her up for that. So anyway, we come back that night, 
and sure enough, she's there, and I was just praying. I'm like, Lord, the power is not in me. I don't, I don't have anything. And I remember this passage of Scripture because I was preaching. I was like, Lord, I hope this demon doesn't say, Jesus I know, Paul I know, but Sean, who are you? And I thought, <laughs> if the demon says that, all I can say is, it's Jesus. It's not Sean. All I'm going to do is preach the gospel over this woman, and God, you're going to have to do the work. And so she came back, and again, we, we gathered around her, and we prayed for her, and, and nothing happened. And so whether she had a demon or not, I don't know, but she clearly heard the gospel, and we prayed for power. And then Wayne said, this other woman here has a demon too. Would you like to pray for her? And I'm thinking, is this ever going to stop? I just need to get some rest here. Because let me tell you something. We'll talk about this next week. We prayed like crazy for these people. And I'm going to tell you something, and the guys like Doug and, 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 and Heath and Cody and, and the guys that were praying over people, it was just as exhausting to pray over people as it was to preach. I mean, I'd preach like a half an hour sermon, and then we'd spend another half an hour, 45 minutes praying for people, and it was exhausting spiritually and emotionally. But we see that the occult is real. Now, we don't see it here in America, but in India, David and the, the, the missionary I were talking, he says, in India, it's overt, it's all over the place. I mean, when you open yourselves up to demons in the morning by having idolatry and, and all these false gods, you know that you're going to be haunted by them in the afternoon. It's all over the place in India. In America, it's more subtle, and he says that's why it's scarier. You can't see it. It's not out in the open in America, but the devil is doing a work here. He just does it in different ways. He manifests himself in more sly, slick ways usually related to our consumerism, our materialism, and our sexual immorality here in America. But here's what happens. They're forsaking their idols. They're burning their books. So let me ask you a question. Is there an idol that you need to forsake? Is there something that you're holding on dearly to that, I, that, that your identity you're saying, that this, this is what I live for. This is who I am. If this is taken away from me, I will cease to have purpose. I will cease to have meaning. If this one thing were taken away from me, my life would come crashing down. If that is true for you, that person or that thing or that experience is an idol in your life. And the only one that can truly fill you is Christ alone. And so is there anything that you're holding on to? And it may, need, it may mean public repentance. It may mean some concrete, definitive saying, I'm going to turn. I'm going to forsake. I'm going to give up this once and for all, and I'm going to turn and embrace and extol and praise Christ. Jesus was pretty serious about repentance. It's not easy, by the way. Repentance is never easy because here's what it means. Repentance means giving up something that's very important to you for something of greater value, Jesus. But here's the problem. We think that Jesus is not as valuable as the thing that we're holding on to. And so it's like crazy to rip our hands away from that thing we're holding on to. Listen to what Jesus says about how radical repentance is. Matthew 5, 27 through 30. Jesus says, You've heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than your whole body to go into hell. 
oftentimes we look at the story and we say, well, you know, obviously Jesus is being facetious. Obviously Jesus is exaggerating. We're not supposed to cut off our hands. We're not supposed to gouge out our eyes. Every time we sin, if that happened, we'd walk around as maimed people with no body parts. That's not what he's saying. But he is saying be radical with your sin. He is saying kill that sin. Make a definitive break from that sin. Repent from that sin. So what's God doing here in Ephesus? What's happening? People are being trained. They're being discipled. They're going out and making a difference. The whole region is hearing the gospel. People are are abandoning their magic arts. There's public repentance. God's doing powerful works. There's signs and wonders. There's this amazing display of God's glory, of God's power. And guess what happens? Who's going to react? There's going to be a backlash. There's going to be a riot. Because when the community starts to be transformed for the gospel, guess what? Lost people don't like it, and they're going to fight against it. So here's the revival. God is doing this work of great grace and great power. Let's see the riot. Let's look at verse 21. Now, after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, After I've been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. About that time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see in here that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. Now here's the issue here, what's going on. There's this guy, Artemis, that has a souvenir shop outside the temple, and he's making money, and all his friends are making money, and guess what's happening? People aren't buying the little idols anymore. Why aren't they buying the little idols anymore? Because they've trusted Christ for salvation, and they don't need to go buy little idols anymore. And so he looks and says, my goodness, nobody's buying idols. I'm going to lose business, and not only that, we may make Artemis mad because she's the great goddess, and if, she, if we make her mad, she's going to bring calamity upon our town, so we need to do something about this. We're losing money. We're losing business. We're incurring the wrath of this goddess. Let's get together all the, 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 the souvenir shop owners that are making these little idols, and let's do something about this Paul, and let's see what happens. Verse 28. When they heard this, they were enraged, and they were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! So the city was filled with confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater." Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they'd come together. Sounds like a normal riot. Why are we here? I don't know. Everybody else is going there, so I'll just follow the crowd. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward, and Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, Who is there who does not know that the city of Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? There was a rumor that a meteor had fallen from the sky 
that looked like the multi-breasted goddess Artemis. And so there was this myth that um, this meteor fell and that the this, this city was sacred because of, the, of this, this meteor, this, this stone that, that, that fell from the sky. Verse 36. Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you sink anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there's no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. The riot forms, they drag Paul to the theater. Now what in the world was the theater? The ruins of Ephesus tell us that the theater held up to 24,000 people, kind of like a Pepsi Center. It was the, the greatest, largest place to conduct business. So I don't know how many people rushed Paul, but if it held up to 24,000 people, it's a huge mob riot. And in this, these theaters, uh, the golden age of Greek comedy and tragedy had passed. Now the theater was specifically just for lewd behavior, lewd entertainment, basically pornography, rated R type of, of entertainment happened in the theater and that's what's going on. They drag Paul there in this riot and they're worshiping this goddess Artemis in the theater. And then the guy stands up, the city official, and says, guys, we shouldn't be doing this. We'll be charged with rioting. The courts are open. Let's, let's handle this peaceably. And then the riot calms down. Now think about this for a moment. In Sterling, Colorado, we do not have the Temple of Artemis. We do not have souvenir shops with people selling little plastic or silver gods and goddesses. But we do have a culture of gods and goddesses, and we do have a culture of, uh, of temples. What's a temple today? Well, a temple can be anything that you erect that takes the place of Christ. It could be your big screen TV. It could be the cineplex. It could be the stadium. It could be your backyard. Whatever you erect or you build either in your mind or with your hands that is taking the place of God. Do you think we have gods and goddesses today that we worship? Yeah, athletes, movie stars, entertainers. If you don't think we do, go to Walmart and see what's on every shelf. Look at Yahoo, look at Twitter. We are fascinated with the celebrity culture and we follow these people as if they're gods and goddesses. And who are the greatest casualties of this idol factory in our culture today? It's our children and our youth. The Kaiser Family Foundation has done a recent study on technology. It's called Generation M2, Media and the Lives of 8 to 18-Year-Olds. Okay? So here's some findings. 8 to 18-Year-Olds spend more time with media than any other activity besides maybe sleeping. An average of more than 7.5 hours a day, 7 days a week. The report goes on to say that due to multitasking, the average kid actually consumes 11 hours of media in the same 7.5-hour time frame. Okay, so you got this, you got this, you got this, you got this, and something else all coming in upon our teenagers and our youth. And most of these images and most of these things are not of God. And so here's the issue. We are living in a culture much like Ephesus today. But here's the question I want to ask you. There was a riot in Ephesus. 
that disrupted the whole town. There was this mob riot that came and disrupted the whole town, and there was this huge change that was going on. Has Christ done that in your life? Think about it this way. Has Christ caused a riot in your heart? What do I mean by that? Has he come and overturned the idols in your heart? Has he come and disrupted your priorities? Has he come and changed you from the inside out that you are now a new person to where the things that you used to do, you no longer want to do because your goal now is to glorify Christ? Has he done a disruption in your life? You see, in India, becoming a Christian is a big deal. You have to give up everything in India to be a Christian. You've got to give up your family. You've got to give up your career. You may have to give up finances. You may have to give up your reputation, job prospects, marriage prospects. You have to give up everything because the whole entire life is wrapped up in Hinduism. And for you to say, I'm going to be a Christian, means you give up everything. And in India... They take baptism very seriously. That's when you, not that baptism saves you, but that's the moment that you really make a break with your past life. They call it take baptism. When you take baptism, you're basically saying, I am no longer identifying with my family, with Hinduism, everything that my life was before, I'm making a new step, and now I am a Christian. You have to give up all in India. Listen to the words of Jesus in Luke chapter 9. And he said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. Take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? Here's what I'm afraid of. I'm afraid we have a culture of many people that are gaining the entire world, but they're losing their souls. They're gaining everything this world has to offer. In the process, they're losing their souls. They're forfeiting their souls. And here's the lie. Here's the great lie. The great lie of Satan says, everything this world has to offer, that's what true meaning and happiness means. Everything this world has to offer, that's what you need to consume. That's what you need to grab. That's what you need to live for. That's what's going to make you happy. That's what's going to satisfy you. Everything that, if you gain this world, you've got it made. That's what the world says. That's the lie of the devil. Gain the world. And Jesus says, no. You gain the world, you lose your soul. You lose me. Instead, See the greater value, the greater beauty, the greater glory of receiving me, of taking me, of trusting in me, because he's worth it all. May we be like the Ephesians who repented. Demonstrable repentance. And because of a demonstrable repentance, a demonstrable work of God in our lives, the entire area would have heard and known and seen the glory of God and the gospel of Christ put on display because we've taken it out of our training, out of our little cloistered Bible studies, and in our Monday through Friday, Saturday, 24-7 lives, we're making an impact for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let me ask you to bow your heads this morning. simple
From what do you need to repent? What are you holding on to that's become your idol? Has Jesus so disrupted your life and toppled your life and turned your life over that instead of gaining the world, you've gained Christ? Today can be a day of change for you. Today can be a day of real freedom for you because, because, because here's the lie again. The lie, the lie of, of the devil says that these things are going to bring you freedom when in reality they bring you slavery and bondage. True freedom is only found in Christ. So would you ask the Holy Spirit to search your heart this morning and reveal to you in what areas you need to repent and fix your gaze upon Christ. Spend some time in prayer this morning. Would we have a fear of you this morning, Lord, that leads to praise? Would you come and and disrupt our hearts? Would you come and do a riot in our hearts to turn over and topple and get rid of anything that we may be holding on to that is an idol? Lord, if there are any in this room that are trying to gain the whole world, show them that they're losing their souls. And only, Holy Spirit, you can change hearts and minds to truly bring about repentance. So, Holy Spirit, I trust that you would reveal the truth deep down in hearts this morning, exposing these lies of the enemy, exposing these strong pulls from the world. And, Holy Spirit, would you open the eyes of the heart to see the beauty and the majesty and the glory of Christ and all that he has to offer that we might be a repenting people, a humble people, or God, you would do amazing things in our life like you did in Ephesus, that you alone would receive all the glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.